be able to worship together, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. We have our football up here to remind us that we're a church focused on the fundamentals every single week. We remind ourselves of those fundamentals. They're so important to us. Um, that's why we have these pillars on this um, slide behind us. We're focused on starting to move out in all these different pillars. It's our hope that over the course of uh, the next couple of years, really, everybody will have a chance to work through all these pillars and apply them to their everyday ordinary lives. And so we saw last week the teaching pillar in action as Jack got up here and taught us from John 14. Wasn't that great? So good to have him up here. And that kind of happened because a few months before that, Jack and I met for lunch, as we often do, to kind of sort life out. And we started talking about this teaching pillar and how important it was to provide opportunities for people who were inclined to teach, to teach. And so with Jack retiring, it was a great opportunity, and he got up here and was able to apply what we're doing in our teaching pillar in front of all of you to demonstrate. That's what these pillars are all about. That's how they work. It's just doing our everyday, ordinary life. Here's another example up here from the leadership pillar. So John Bragg and Sherry Herstein are working on this. They're helping kids learn leadership skills down in the center. Half dozen or so kids in Midland will be learning communication skills, integrity, work ethic, problem solving issues, and they, as they work through and plan and care for these gardens down there. So again, it's just applying these pillars to our everyday, ordinary lives. It's really just that simple. So if you're still hanging out on the sidelines, Time to get in the game, right? We're moving out on this whole effort. So obviously I could probably stay up here today and talk about pillars for the entire time because I'm really excited about them, but I know we have a sermon to get to. So um, just bow with me for a brief prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, grant us. For Jesus' sake, amen. So as we work our way through this opening chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, we see over and over again that he's teaching us about what Christians are to believe. And beliefs are so important because they inform our identities, as we've said over and over again. And then our identities are what shape our thoughts and our behaviors and basically impact the entirety of our lives. And if you're new with us today, we've been using our tombstones up here to kind of help us think through different aspects of our identities because the tombstone that we all have actually contains many things we need to think through. For example, we all have a birth date. And our birth date reminds us to consider this question, where did I come from? Such an important thing to know. And then of course, we will all one day have a death date. And that causes us to consider this question, where will I go when I die? So knowing where we came from and where we're going are so important to our identity. And then there's that dash in the middle, represents our life. Not very long, is it? But it causes us to consider that question, why am I here? And as Paul unpacks what Christians are to believe, he helps us answer these three existential questions that form our identity. And in particular, he keeps using this phrase, in Christ or in him. He actually writes those words over a hundred times in all the different letters he writes throughout the New Testament. And we've seen it six times so far just in the opening lines of Ephesians 1. You recall, Paul was writing the letter to the saints in Ephesus, and he defines those as believers who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's the first time we see it up there. 
and he's writing from a Roman jail cell, and yet he's joyful, and he's thankful because God has blessed us in Christ, the second time we see it. And the very specific blessing Paul refers to is that God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world as his adopted children, with all the blessings that accompany it, both now and when we get to heaven. And then Paul makes three statements about what it means to be adopted, and all of them start with in him. We looked at the first two already, and Cammie read all three of them for us this morning. The first one, Paul explained that in him, we have redemption through Christ's blood. And then the second one, that in him, we've obtained an inheritance as God's adopted children. And then last week, Jack took us through Jesus' upper room discourse to show us why Paul keeps using this word in. And it's because it's the same word Jesus used so often. And he used it to demonstrate the nature of our relationship with God. He used those words, I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. And as Jack taught us, in those words, we see this relationship is grounded in a sense of permanency. It's life-giving, and there's a security to it all. And then we're going to learn more about how this all works today as Paul teaches us on number six, about how being in him also means our inheritance is sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. So that's kind of like a 30,000-foot view of where we've been so far on this issue of being in Christ. But before we jump into our text, I want to go just a little deeper as we continue to review this phrase, in him, because it's so important we grasp the richness of our uniquely Christian identity of being in him. We introduced this graphic a few weeks back, and we continue to work through it and develop it. But the key thing when we think of this phrase, in him, is that we are centered on Christ. And Paul began by speaking of how blessed we are. In particular, we've already mentioned, being chosen in him before the foundation of the world as God's adopted children, not by our merit, but simply because in love, God extends us grace. Being in him also means that we have redemption, and we looked at this three weeks ago. We have been, we are being, and we will be redeemed. That's the justification, the sanctification, and the glorification we've been talking about. Enslaved in our sin, Jesus ransoms, he purchases, he frees us by his forgiveness that he does by shedding his own blood on the cross, on our behalf. And he did this out of the riches of his grace, as we learned, that unmerited favor that he lavished upon us. God also grants us wisdom and insight to grasp the mystery of this will, to unite all things that are in him. It's a central feature of our inheritance in him, which we studied two weeks ago. It's part of God's grand design that his adopted children would be part of his body, his church, heirs to kingdom riches. And his grand design will be carried out from him, through him, and to him. In fact, it's all of God because we obtained it by lot. So it's nothing we did but simply because God chose to adopt us as his children. So the source, the design, the mechanism, and the purpose of God's plan is God, and all to the praise of his glory. 
through Paul, God isn't telling us what we need to do to become Christians. God's telling us that he did it for us. And that's absolutely huge for us to grasp. And that's the reason for our joy and our hope and the freedom we experience in Christ. Now, there's one more thing we need to just clarify before we jump into the text today. And it just so happens today is Trinity Sunday in the liturgical year, so this is nice that it lined up. We need to have a clear understanding of our triune God. We saw this months ago in the Sermon on the Mount, but I figured it's worth dragging it out, dusting off a little bit. Hopefully this graphic helps us begin to grasp the paradox of the Trinity. And we see paradoxes all over Scripture. A paradox is basically where on the one hand, something is true. On the other hand, something else is true. But in our finite little minds, they seem to contradict each other. But in God's sense of things, they're perfectly compatible and completely truthful. And so we have to wrestle with them. And we see that here in the Trinity. We worship one God in three persons. On the one hand, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But on the other hand, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're one and yet distinct. Using John Stott's language, the Father is the creator and sustainer of the universe. The Son is the Savior and Lord of the world. And the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier of God's people. And we're going to focus on Him and His role today and over the next couple of weeks. So the Father planned it, the Son procured it, and the Holy Spirit applies it. And the it is our identity in Him. So now let's get into our specific text for today, because it shows us how God makes us Christians in Christ. And it all starts out at a very specific point in time. It's when we hear the word of truth. In other words, revelation from God. What is the source of this word of truth? It's our Bibles, Holy Scripture, inspired and breathed by God. It's the truth. That's why we preach out of the Bible here. We walk line by line through it so that we can hear the truth in the person, words, and works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It all starts there. So we don't want you to come on Sundays to hear from me, to hear from Cammy, to hear from Jack, or to hear from Tyler or anyone else. We want you to come to hear the truth from Scripture. That's also why just about every sermon we preach has as its application that you need to get into Scripture. It's so important that we're there. We must feed on it daily, feast on it. Not only read it, but also notice that how as we read it, it reads us. It shows us our sin, and then it shows us our Savior, His love, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness. And his call for us to respond to it all in obedience, day by day, taking up our crosses and following after him, carrying out his commission for us to go, to make disciples of all nations. And if that's our mission, we don't want to go through life without ever being a part of disciple making. That's what he calls us to do. And that's again why these pillars are so absolutely important. And some of you are thinking, Okay, this whole pillar thing is just one more item to add to my already extremely busy schedule. So that means 
My kid can't play soccer on Wednesday nights because I got to go Wednesday and do something with a pillar. And that's absolutely not what we want you to do. We want you to be out there at that soccer field on Wednesday night. But when you're out there, we want you practicing that pillar with all the other parents sitting with you in those stands. And that's why working out and developing those skills and those talents we see in each of those pillars are so important for all of us. So we're not asking you to reprioritize your life. We're simply saying in all that you do already in your everyday ordinary life, that you make that your priority. That's what we're looking for in these pillars. But you'll see it all starts with hearing God's truth, both individually and as a church. It's just how Jesus nourishes his body. It's why we post all of our sermons online. If you can't make it on Sunday, you gotta watch it later in the week because you don't wanna miss out on it. That's what the church is focused on. We gotta be plugged into our church. And we certainly don't wanna miss a chance to read or listen to scripture as often as we can each day. It's the only place anywhere out there that we can find absolute truth. And while this absolute truth is universal to all, it's also intensely personal. Paul writes, it's the gospel of your salvation. It's the good news that you have a personal Lord and Savior in Christ Jesus. It's intimately focused on each of us. That's the beauty of the living word. Every time we hear it, it speaks truth into every detail of our lives. The truth is what convicts us of our sin. It's what calls us to repentance, and that must happen every single day of our lives. And due to the personal nature of our salvation, only we can know for sure if we're saved or not. We must never presume someone else's state of salvation, either in the positive or the negative. We all say things, wish we didn't do things, whatever. We are not to sit in judgment. We've learned that over and over again already. This is between God and each individual person. But it's not just hearing the word of truth. It's not just being convicted at a personal level of the need for our salvation. Paul says we must also believe in him. That's our response to hearing the word of truth, belief. So how does belief unfold? Martin Lloyd-Jones gives us a really helpful four-step process. We'll just walk through it quickly. It starts by being made aware of our sin. And how does that happen? That only happens when we're in Scripture. Next, we learn God is holy and just and that there's a judgment day. And that also happens when we read Scripture. Then we find out that God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for us. Again, where do we find that out? It's also in Scripture. And then we repent of our sin. We turn from it. We place our faith, our hope, our trust in Christ as our Savior. And it's in that fourth phase up there that we then believe in Him. And we are therefore in Him. And that's our new identity. So belief in God is the mechanism or the instrument by which we become in him, his adopted children. This is so important. But our belief is not what saves us. It's Christ's blood. It's such an important distinction because it must be from God. We're so prone, we're so apt 
to want to make it about ourselves. We say, yes, I accept the truth of Scripture, who Christ is and what he did for me. But then I also go to church. I also tithe. I also help out at the center every chance I get. And I start adding all these additional things on. And all of those are taking you further and further away. It is not our behavior. It is not our belief that saves us. The belief and the behavior are simply our response to hearing the word of truth, the gospel of our personal salvation. Our salvation comes exclusively from God. So if it all begins by hearing the word of truth, why then, when the apostles preached the word of truth, did some people believe and others picked up rocks to try and kill them? Well, it comes down to the work of the Holy Spirit. We're about to get into all this in the text here. But the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of the truth of Scripture, those four steps you see up there. We simply cannot come to a belief in Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's just not possible. And at the same time, while God enables us to believe, he does not believe for us. We must choose to believe. God doesn't act on us mechanically as though we're a puppet. God doesn't compel anyone to believe against his or her will. What happens is that God persuades our wills. The Holy Spirit convicts us. He makes the truth attractive and compelling to us. So no man has ever been forced to believe against his will. Rather, he's been made to see his sin as so detestable and his Savior as so desirable. Or as Tim Keller puts it, those who freely choose God are those whom God has freely chosen. And here again, we see this paradox. On the one hand, God chose us, and we know that because we see it squarely in Scripture. And on the other hand, we choose Him. So how do we resolve this paradox? Well, the key to understanding it rests in our application of the principle from Him, through Him, and to Him. We know God chose us Him for the foundation of the world. He's sovereign, and He chooses His people, so we can see the from Him. And the way he adopts his children is by the work of Christ on the cross and all that he accomplished there. So it's through him. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to convict his people to believe in him. So it's to him. So God is in the totality of it all. But we are free to choose to believe it or not. Do you see how God enables us, but he doesn't believe for us? But you see, we can't believe if we don't first hear the word of truth. And that's why we must go. That's why we must make disciples. That's what all these pillars are about. We think about our loved ones, the people we sit next to at work, the neighbors. We live right alongside all of our friends. Have they heard the word of truth? Either from our words or perhaps even more effectively, by our actions. Because those are the people that God put in our everyday, ordinary lives, and he didn't make a mistake when he did that. And that's why those pillars, when we're working those out in our lives, we're not looking to bring people to Four Mile Church. This is not our model. We're looking to bring them to Christ, and that happens when we go. It doesn't happen when we come. That's the way Jesus designed it. 
And it's all about us when we go living and speaking the truth of Scripture. Because as we saw here, it all begins by hearing the word of truth, the gospel of our personal salvation in order that we might believe in him. Because when we hear the word of truth and believe, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be sealed? Well, a seal serves a couple of really important functions. First, it means we're marked. Kind of like when we brand cattle. If you're driving along the side of the road and you see a cow and you don't know why that cow is walking along the side of the road, you look at the brand and you could quickly know who owns this cattle. The same is done with property. We put a sign or a seal on a deed to a house to indicate that it belongs to us. When we believe, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit to signify that we belong to God. We're his adopted children. We're in Christ. Second, it means we've been authenticated. Our identity has been confirmed or validated. Kind of like that raised seal that we see on a birth certificate or when a notary signs something. It authenticates the document. It says, this is the real deal. I saw with my own eyes the signature that this person put on there to confirm it. When we believe, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit to authenticate or confirm our identity is truly in Christ. And third, it means we've been secured, protected from harm or destruction from the evil one. When a document has been sealed, you think about like a transcript from high school or a will, its contents have been secured until the seal is broken. If the seal is intact, we know nothing has tampered with it in the meantime. When we believe, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit to secure or protect our salvation in Christ. And fourth, notice too, how the seal is a result of God's promise. It's sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's about as good as it gets, because when God promises something, it's his word, it's truth. It cannot be broken, it will happen. So it is absolutely as good as it gets. So the use of language such as seal and promise speaks to an assurance that we have regarding our salvation. And we want everyone to leave here today with this assurance because that assurance is based on God's guarantee of our inheritance. And in the original language, the word guarantee is earnest, which is a pledge or a down payment in advance for something. You buy a house, you're asked to put down earnest money or hand money, it's sometimes called, and it demonstrates your intention to buy it. That money, let's say it's three grand, it provides assurance that you're not gonna walk away from the deal, because if you do, you lose your three grand. But if you follow through, that three grand is put towards the total cost of the house. So the use of this word earnest illustrates God's intention for you to receive that kingdom inheritance that we discussed before. In fact, he's so earnest about this, so committed to giving his adopted children their kingdom inheritance that he places himself in the person of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee by indwelling his adopted children. He didn't put jewelry down. He didn't put artwork down. He placed himself down, the Holy Spirit, as the guarantee within those who are in him. 
This gives us a foretaste of our inheritance as we anticipate receiving the fullness of it once we get to heaven. And that anticipation grows as we walk with the Holy Spirit, as we follow his leading, as he sanctifies us, making us more Christ-like each day as we move closer to receiving that full inheritance. So we have assurance, and the assurance isn't based on us. It's based solely on God's promise. And that, of course, leads us to the same response Paul keeps showing us, the words to the praise of his glory. As we've seen now, for the third time in just these few lines we've studied, Paul responds with a doxology of praise. That's why we started out today's service with Tyler leading us in a doxology of praise. We must have a spirit of praise in all that we do, because it changes absolutely everything. It's just like Tyler said, it doesn't matter what's going on in our day. When we turn to praise, it shifts our focus off ourselves and puts it squarely on God. Humble praise is the only response we can have to these amazing blessings that Paul describes for us. So now, how do we apply these to our lives? Well, this is so simple and so straightforward. It's very easy. We simply live out our identity in Christ as God's chosen people before the foundation of the world. Because you see, through this teaching, Paul is showing us exactly where we came from. God made us uniquely and chose to adopt us. That's where we came from. God also tells us through Paul here where we're going when we die to claim our heavenly inheritance. And then he tells us why we're here, to the praise of his glory. That's it. That's what it means to be in Christ. So are we living out our lives as though all of this were true? That's what those pillars will help us do to start applying everything that we learned, all of our identity that we have in our everyday ordinary lives to everybody that we come in contact with. That should be a huge encouragement to us because it means, as we see here, in the truth of Scripture, it's all based on God's sovereignty. It can't fail. It's his masterful plan, and we're a part of it, to adopt his children redeeming them by Christ's blood shed on the cross, granting them an inheritance and sealing them by giving them the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is God who saves his people. Nothing we do, which is such good news, because I know I couldn't do it. All things flow from him, he chose us. All things flow through him, he redeemed us. And all things flow to him, to the praise of his glory. And our response upon hearing of this truth that is only found in Scripture is that we place our faith in Him, meaning we believe it to be true, and therefore it shapes our behavior. Belief and behavior, they're so intrinsically linked. If you don't believe food is safe to eat, you just won't buy it. If you don't believe Jesus died for you, then you won't follow Him and live in obedience to Him. But if we believe Jesus is our Savior, then our behavior will reflect our belief, will love and obey Him, because we are in Him. 
We're now a part of him, his body, his church. And while neither our belief nor our behavior saves us, it does provide us assurance of our salvation simply because God promised that when we believe, we place our faith in Christ, we're saved. And that's simply what it means to be in him, to the praise of his glory. I want to close with this red drop slide. It's my hope that it's continually being burned into the canvas of our hearts. Given all we've covered in the Sermon on the Mount in the last couple of weeks, when we go out into the neighbors and we go out and see our friends and our family, take this image with us. It's so helpful because we start to see how all this hangs together in this one simple little graphic. Because when we hear the word of truth and believe in Christ, place our faith in him, we're justified, made right in a moment by that red drop of Christ's blood. We're born again into a new life in Christ and we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We leave that dark wide path that's leading to eternal destruction and the Holy Spirit walks us hand in hand down that well-lighted narrow path into God's kingdom, sanctifying us, making us more Christ-like each day, sealing us. And that seal is the guarantee of our inheritance that we'll one day receive in its fullness when we're glorified in God's presence for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word today. We thank you for the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit that you have sent to indwell all those who believe by faith in the work of your son on the cross. Part of your grand plan that you put in place before the foundation of the world to make your adopted children holy and blameless in your presence. And Father, as we consider your great love for us, our sin remains ever before us, reminding us daily of our need for a savior. You are our God and we are your people. So you sent your son to be our savior, dying on the cross for our sins, establishing this new covenant that we all live under. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only and our souls shall be healed. Amen.